Welcome to the Almost Not a Teacher podcast. Here, we are sharing experiences and how it's like being in the childcare and student care teaching industry. Let's discuss on teachers stepping out of their classrooms and into their new career path. I'm Shahida, and it's so nice to have you listening in. Teachers, do you know that your skills are transferable? Let's find out together on how we can empower you as a teacher and a career switcher. So today we have Afia here with us. Come, tell us more about who you are, what you do, and things like that. Let's go. Hey everyone, I'm Afia. Uh, I was formerly a preschool teacher for about six years. I fully transitioned into a digital marketing executive. Do you like your new job? I mainly actually am more in touch with doing uh, social media marketing. Mm. So it's exactly what I've always wanted. Um, the goal was to transition to working remotely at any parts of the world. Hopefully I'm on my way to do that. <laughs> Hopefully, digital nomad, it's a trend these days. I personally want to be a digital nomad as well. But yeah, working hard towards it. Today's topic will be about classroom management in the early childhood industry. We know now that you were an early childhood educator and you know how it was to manage a class of toddlers, of preschoolers. From the previous episode, our guest, she mentioned what's the daily routine and things like that. But today, we like to go into managing the class. Like what are the tips and tricks? Um, What are your thoughts and perspectives on handling kids, especially with tantrums? Tell us more of what you've done during your years of experience. Fortunately for me, I have teached the younger ones, so that's around one and a half years old to the three-year-olds. And the classroom management skills that we have for them is slightly different from the older children. With the younger ones, you definitely have to understand their needs. There is something that you'll get used to after being with them, after like a couple of weeks, you know. Because some of them are non-verbal, they don't actually know how to speak yet. You gotta understand what each cry means, mm. what each cooing means you know so once you're familiarized with that and they're familiarized with you then i'm sure they will start opening up and then you can uh, set down ground rules for younger children i think cause and effect is something that let them learn mm-hmm. for example like a common thing is like you shouldn't be running in class you fall down and stuff like that so you have to keep on explaining to them of course there are chances are they will look at you like what are you talking about mm-hmm. you'll just be so puzzled One of the ways we can actually go about that is basically reading storybooks, something that is visual. It has a visual cue, having posters in class, like classroom rules that has visual cues on them. And also if they are vibrant in colours, those are the things that actually help children settle down and also understand the classroom rules. Another tactic that I would usually use is I sing a lot in my class. It became a habit. Whenever I start singing, it becomes like a sentence. So mm-hmm. instead of saying uh, children come over, I'll be like, we'll sing a song to the tune of children rhymes. And then after that, children will actually chime in as well. So at one point, I was singing so much that the children started singing to their friends. Mm-hmm. So I guess that is a fun way of actually communicating with your children and they can do it uh, happily. For example, if you want to get them to keep their toys, let's say it's lunchtime. Mm-hmm. So of course, there's the cleanup song. And then once uh, the teacher and also a few of the friends started singing the cleanup song, the children will start cleaning up. So that is causing effect and also repeat. Hmm. 
it's really a lot of visual cues in the classroom because from what I know your classrooms are really up to date with all the decorations and there must be like a lot of colors to help the development for the students mm -hmm. the importance of visuals is it really very impactful to preschoolers uh, yes, especially for the younger ones because like uh, I mentioned earlier, not everybody understands what I'm talking about. So if you're pointing to your eye, what are you talking about? For example, pointing to your eyes means, okay, using your eyes to see, having that visual cue that represents that helps and then after that further explaining that, oh, you should look around you before you cross the road. Be mindful of dangers around you. Colors is quite subjective. For younger children, having those vibrant colors will definitely attract their attention. Mm -hmm. But being an environment where we talk about classroom environment where it's too there are too many colors it's too overwhelming then the eyes will get really tired and then you'll start noticing overstimulated just like adults we go to fun fairs and there's a lot of things in our background and everything like that we get overstimulated it'll be difficult for children to sleep so i guess it's a balance of both mm. On a scale of 1 to 10 on your day-to-day -day basis how would you rate it on average <laughs> Mainly because for me, the centres that I've been with, I wasn't so lucky in that sense. So I have new children coming in like every uh, beginning or middle of the month. Mm. So at one point that happens throughout the year until December, January to December. So it's constant, constant crying in my classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, but at other places, I'm much more luckier. So this centre particularly has first batch of children coming in. Two, three months after they have settled down, another batch of children starts coming in. So typically for me, if the children have settled within the first three months, then it's a five or six. If we are talking about first month, then of course it's chaos. So that's a 11, not a 10 anymore. <laughs> because you have children constantly crying and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But how do you handle that though? Like the children crying. From what I've heard, preschoolers, when one cries, apparently another follows. Like a domino effect. Is that true? Okay, that depends. You know, like for some children who are a bit more sensitive, uh, one person start asking for mommy, then the second, uh, the, the, the child who somehow have settled down, and then after that, oh, I suddenly remember my mommy. Mm -hmm. Then after that, uh, they start crying. Another one, you'll start seeing toddler's behavior where those who have already settled down will actually try to pacify their other friends for crying. Mm -hmm. So you get like a tap on the shoulder or the hand, say it's okay, it's okay. Some children are very tough. The first, the moment they come in, they don't have, they don't cry at all. They're just all right. You know, mm. they settle down pretty easily. So I guess it depends. It largely depends on the children's personality. It's really a lot of talking to them, comforting them, consoling them. Especially when they are crying. Do words actually get to them when they are crying? How do you actually interact with them? Because when they cry, it's like there's a wall. I mean, not just children. I'm pretty sure adults as well. When we cry... When anybody cries, there's always like a wall between them and another being. So how do you overcome that? What, what do you say and how do you actually break down that wall? a couple of steps prior to that. For me, I show more physical contact with the child. By physical contact, meaning um, I like to hug the child. Mm. But of course, it depends. You know, you, you can't just go ahead and if the child is crying and pushing your way and start picking them up and cuddling them and stuff like that, you can't just do that. You have to start talking to them. Build a bond with them. For example, if it helps having a picture of their family photo Mm. And then showing, oh, mommy's here. And then like uh, constantly updating them. Oh, mommy says this, is this, this, this. Reassurance, basically. So basically, I guess the first month, if you're coming in with a new toddler, especially 
talking to them and repeating the same words helps. Mm. Uh, I remember there's this one occasion where I had a Turkish boy in my center who speak only Turkish, so uh, they no. don't speak English. It took him quite a while, at least three to four months, to actually fully acclimatize to the scene and stuff like that. So what happened on a daily basis is we had to actually get the mother to do a video recording of her speaking in Turkish, basically saying, "Mommy's coming, just wait a little while, you know, you don't have to worry and stuff like that. Of course, for this instance, it's a bit of an exception. So we are always on our iPad showing mummy's uh, this one just to reassure him. Mm-hmm. Um, he will of course find a corner, cry and wail. But having a teacher next to him, attending to his needs, for example, if he cried too much, he's thirsty and his water bottle is there, a teacher's reassuring him with that. So I'm guessing he'll settle down. Uh, sleeping is another issue, you know, when he first when he first came in, he doesn't understand why do I need to sleep in a childcare? Why can't I go home and sleep? Uh, so we explain to him, you know, look at your friends, they are they're drinking their milk, they're settled down and they are sleeping. So having a good bedtime routine also helps. So I guess the mother also practiced that like the night before he goes to school, the mom will actually explain to him what is the process and that goes on for I guess a couple of months. Mm. Mm. It's really a collaboration between both the teachers and also the parent, the mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I guess the key word here is you've got to continuously talk to the child. If mm. not, the child will feel not so assured, not safe, you know. Mm. So constantly repeating the same thing becomes like a routine and a routine is something safe for them. The security. Like what's that called? The mm-hmm. muscles hierarchy of needs? The security. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, correct. Yeah, but like over time, because you mentioned that he only understands Turkish. So over time, does mm-hmm. he pick up certain English words in class? Has he started talking? How does he actually communicate with his classmates at that point of time? Mm, okay, I guess for children at a young age, you know, as they're building their language, they speak more with their body language. So mm-hmm. I guess gestures help for them if they're communicate, communicating with each other. Mm. So one might be uh, speaking in English, another one might be speaking in Turkish. But uh, you know, sometimes you have kids from other parts of the world, like China and stuff like that. But they still bonded together, okay, overplaying and stuff like that. So I guess that's one way where he not only bond but also pick up uh, languages. Mm. So in the center that we he was in, it's a bilingual center. So of course he was exposed to English and also Chinese, mm. and he bonded closer to a Chinese laoshi. I guess in that sense, after he settled down the first two months onwards and everything has been a routine, he started picking up English words. Mm. So his mom is also able to speak in English. She reinforces that at home as well. Like for example, song, water bottle, water, that kind of thing. Simple words like that are being Mm. reinforced at home and also in school. So he is able to put two and two together. Just like adults, you know, when we start to learn a new language, we'll pick up the easier ones first and then after that, the more often you speak it and then after that, you're more confident and you understand what it means. Mm, yeah. yeah. There's just one child. Like, how many students are there usually in a class? At my peak, I had, I guess, 23 children. But mm. because we are in the same day, that means we share the same classroom mm. uh, and that is 46 children in the same classroom. Wow, okay. So... 46 children and all of them have different habits, different traits. 
like how they handle themselves are all very different. From what you remember during your years as an educator, what is the most prominent memory or like traits that has ever occurred to you? Doesn't matter if it's something you worked hard on to like change them or like it's such a breeze handling them. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, uh, but I guess there is uh, maybe the one at the top of my head would be this child. Mm-hmm. I remember taking him when he was coming to three. Yeah, a bit of a background story about this child. He has an open heart surgery when he was really young. Um, he has since recovered and he has, of course, entered school. at But I think he came in when he was still an infant. So I guess two, three months, he's acclimatized to the school routine and stuff like that. But he's just a happy-go-lucky kid. So that means that he gets hyper really fast and he gets really, really excited. Mm. For this particular child, the mom is a bit more, I would say, sensitive to his needs. Mm. So of course, going through something um, so traumatic at such a young age, you know, the parents, of course, would be a bit more, what's the word for it? Uh... Cautious? Care for the child. <laughs> yeah, cautious. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. A bit more cautious with whatever he does. Of course, knowing his background and everything like that, we try as teachers. You know, you have that select few who you always put them in front of you. Mm. You know, of course, children uh, shouldn't be like behind you. you sh- uh, they should always be within your range of sight. But that particular child, you, you just have to just put it, them beside you, in front of you, as long as they are within your reach. Mm-hmm. I remember it was his birthday and his parents were coming after their nap time to actually celebrate it in school. But what happened was that morning, he apparently sat very close to the edge of the library cupboard, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, the shelf. Okay, this is one of the things that we usually do as a teachers, right? We, we will teach our kids not to throw your books on the floor and step on them. Mm-hmm. Um, because of course first you have to love the books and second is because it's a uh, safety hazard so what happened was he stepped on one of the books and I guess he was facing his back and his friend was facing the front while I was attending to one of the other child that particular friend actually pulled down the book and he fell and he knocked his the side of his head mm-hmm. to the shelf yeah and <sighs> that was a bad like a uh, bruise oh, no. so of course uh, we have to meet the uh, parents right um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. afterwards and stuff like that I still remember the mother was actually pregnant with another child at that time mm-hmm. so she was a bit more I would say sensitive so knowing that and stuff like that you know oh, we're gonna celebrate his birthday and then after that this happened of course she was so pissed off um, the following days, we definitely reinforce the children never to actually do that again because you see, it is, uh, if you do this, this will happen. That is the one of the many cases that I felt that is a bit more prominent because I remember the mom wasn't easy. Oh no. But he's he's okay. Mm. Like what what happens after that? Okay, he uh he was fine. He cried definitely, and we iced him. He drank his milk, had his lunch, and after that, he was normal. After that, so mm-hmm. we monitored there was he wasn't vomiting or stuff like that. So we definitely informed the mom shortly after. Uh yeah, and he he's pretty much okay now. Mm. I think mm. another thing is also like the safety of the children at such a young age is very mm-hmm. important. Like mm-hmm. they just cannot express what they are experiencing in their body. Like if they have a tummy mm-hmm. ache, like there's so many kinds of tummy ache. It can be like a diarrhea or constipation or bloatedness. Mm-hmm. If it's an older children, they know how to describe 
the feeling. But if it's like a younger child, they can't really express. I'm sure there's a lot of like protocols for children experiencing pain and like having safety issues and things like this. Yeah, definitely. I guess one of the important things when children start going to school is reinforcing the importance of using their words. The moment children come into school, we definitely reinforce use your words for certain things. You know, just don't show it yet. You use your words and if need be, we'll assist you with whatever. One thing that I usually do with my kids is let's say you have a tummy ache. Then you tell me you're having a tummy ache. Then mm. I'll definitely proceed and ask him, do you want a poo-poo? Kids will pick up pretty mm. fast once you keep doing that as a routine. So sometimes you can smell if children did a number two or stuff like that. So mm. sometimes they will say, oh, I can't sleep because I poo-poo, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then we'll know what to do next. Yeah. And that is because the children are acclimatized to uh, the routine. But let's say if you have this particular tummy ache, And then after that, you don't know exactly what's going on. It could be just flatulence. One thing that we'll normally do is just we'll monitor the, the situation. If it happens in the morning, and then we'll check by noon if the, the child is okay. And if it continues, then of course, we'll give the parents a call. Mm. But that is also subjected to whether or not the parents are available to do a pickup. If let's say the parents are not available during that time, you have to continue monitoring the child as long as mm. it's not viral. So sometimes what happens is one of those children could get a flu bug, especially stomach flu. It didn't really show in the morning and then after that late in the afternoon. And then by afternoon, you spread it to the other children. Mm. So if it's something as important as that, of course, the children will be brought to the office, to the sick bay and rest. And definitely we'll do our contact tracing. So that's one of the protocols, SOP, right? Is that what you guys call it? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. One of the SOPs, yes, correct. Okay, nice, nice. Very informative. Before we end this episode, tell me one of your favorite ways of managing your class. Hmm. Okay, one of the favorite ways I like to manage my class is I like to sing. Definitely, there'll be a lot of singing. There's a lot of dancing as well. I guess you could say that during the morning and afternoon when we are together in the classroom and stuff like that, so we'll always sing along. I remember we started, you know, like a train where the children put their shoulders on their other friends and after that, we started circling the room. That is one way of managing my children's attention because, okay, with toddlers, their attention span is less than five minutes. <laughs> so if you could get the children engaged and being a part of what's happening in class, I find that that is the most effective manner. Mm. Having musical instruments also help, like a bell or stuff like that. Anything that is loud and interesting, yeah. Mm, attention grabbing. Mm. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm, that's so, right. Do you have any advice for current childcare teachers or teachers who are looking into jumping into this industry? Do you have any wise advice or tips and tricks for them? Okay, I had a recollection. Before I joined this industry and started as a trainee teacher, I spoke to one of these um, principal and asked the same exact question. <laughs> She gave me this piece of advice which I personally resonate with. Basically, know what you enter the industry for. Know if it's your passion, then it will keep you going. Especially when times are tough and you feel down. Know why you started the entire journey because that will be your shining beacon. If let's say you come into the industry thinking, oh, I like kids. So I want to be with kids and especially younger children. Then you're in for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Because with younger children, of course, you have to manage your expectation. You know, it's not only fun and games, especially with young children, just because they're cute. 
and they're responsive to you. But along with these children, you have to understand that they do have special needs as well. You have to manage the parents' expectations and stuff like that. And one more pressing matter that I guess a lot of early childhood teachers are facing is the increased amount of workload. Mm. The amount of workload that never stops. One of the centers that I was with, I was working from Monday to Sunday. Mm. for internal and also external events. Mm. So being a teacher is it's not easy. It's honestly like a 24-hour job. <laughs> yeah, but then but then again, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to dissuade you from joining the industry. Of course, in this current age, especially after COVID and still we're going through the pandemic right now, we need a lot of dedicated teachers. Mm, and know right. that whatever you're doing makes a difference to the children. If mm. not, if you think that you're not making an impact that the public or stuff like that no you're making a difference to the children every single day yeah, yeah it's a fulfilling it's very self-fulfilling if i could say mm. Mm. Okay, great thank you so much for sharing with us your insights thank you for inviting me thank you for listening in to this episode follow us on instagram for other tips news and updates on this podcast If you're loving our podcast, spread the word and share it with your network. Screen record or screenshot and tag us in your social media. If you have any questions, stories or your personal experiences to share on our podcast, you can email it to us at almostnotateacher at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on our upcoming episodes. Till then, 